Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 104. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner. Each February, we ask listeners to nominate their favorite stories from the past year. We lump them together and you vote. We call it the Drabblecast People's Choice Award. This year, we added a Best 100-Word Drabble Story prize in addition to the Best Feature Story. The Best Feature Story winner receives the sacred Drabblecast Chalice of Glory, a trophy that will no doubt catch people's eyes when they walk into your room and make them say, Whoa, nice trophy. Why is there a squid on it? In all seriousness, though, the trophy is pretty cool. I mean, it was handcrafted out of adamantium by the Pope. But the real honor of winning the People's Choice Award is the fact that out of 63 stories, all of which were stories that our editors liked enough to buy in the first place and I liked enough to produce, the majority of fans enjoyed yours the most. No editors, no committees, no politics, or knowing the right people. It's the audience deciding, and that's a pretty cool thing in and of itself. It was super, super close this year. The top three nominated 100-word Drabble stories were The End by Christian Corner, Grandpa's Stories by Roy McDaniel, and Please Allow the Door to Close by John Madai. All great stories, really. It's not easy to write a good 100-word story. You should try. It's a great exercise in compression, refining characters and ideas down to their most basic elements while still making them interesting and meaningful. The winner, by a pretty good margin, was... Please Allow the Door to Close by John Madai. We ran this in episode 89. If you need a memory boost, this was a story about a group of people trapped in an elevator that panic and revert to savagery. Go have a listen. It's a great little piece. Congrats to John. You demand. You can hear more of John's work in audio at the Doonstief Audio Fiction Magazine and at Pseudopod, the horror podcast. We'll have those linked in our show notes. And now for the biggin'. Best feature story. The top five nominated stories voted upon, representing horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and just plain bizarre, were Synesthesia by J. Allen Pierce, Sing by Christine Catherine Rush, Floating Over Time by Robert Reed, Sarah's Window by Janie Lee Simner, and Apologies All Around by Jeff Sosby. And congrats to all five authors for making it to the top five. Votes were neck and neck between these. In the end, though, one story kept its lead. And the 2008 Drabblecast People's Choice Best Story is Floating Over Time by Robert Reed. This was episode 83 that we ran back in October, and in my opinion, worthy of the Sacred Chalice's glorious splendor. The story, in a nutshell, was about two parallel characters, an old man wanting to die, and an ancient space-traveling artificial intelligence wanting to live. I've listened back to this story several times, and not just because I'm narcissistic and obsessed with hearing my own voice, but because the story has so many neat implications and ideas. Floating Over Time was a brand new and previously unpublished work by Mr. Reed, who's won a few other awards for writing in his day, including a Hugo Award. So on behalf of the Drabblecast and all our listeners, Robert, thank you for your work and congratulations. All right, how about a Drabble story? This week's 100-word story is by Carson Becker, a former lawyer now living in San Francisco. It's called To Market. Enjoy. The last vendor arrives when the others have gone and sets his stall between the mists and the road. 
the primary gods are leaving the market with their finds. They hold the perfect souls to the light, admiring the lives they will lead. Peace Prize winners are always popular. Saints and martyrs are making a comeback. The After Hours vendor sets out his wares. There are tricksters, con artists, murderers, souls with bloodstains, souls that are torn, souls dusty and beaten from travel. The gods of few believers will come and pick through them soon. There are always bargains to be had. This week as a feature story, we bring you a little fairy tale called The Food Processor by Michael Canfield. Michael's first dozen or so stories have appeared in Strange Horizons, Futurismic, Escape Pod, in Dead Tree magazines including Blackgate, Tailbones, Flytrap, and Realms of Fantasy, and in anthologies from The Borderlands and Fantasy, the best of the year 2006 by Prime Books. He was born near Las Vegas and now lives in Seattle. You can read more of his stories for free at michaelcanfield.net. So, without further ado, The Food Processor, by Michael Canfield. Though the boys' birthdays occurred weeks apart, mother combined their gift to please father. You may choose your present this year, boys she said. Something to fulfill your destiny, perhaps. The boys were born to change the world. A cement mixer, said the oldest, James. A hammer and nails and wood, said Charles, two years and two weeks younger. We want to make things. Mother pushed her tongue against the side of her mouth. You could choose a gift that would make father happy. The boys lowered their eyes. They lived in a basement, down below the kitchen where father made soups, casseroles, and souffles, much demanded by hungry people in the city. Every year, father bought the latest blenders, electric mixers, and grinders. He ordered the best ingredients in the world. Father wanted the boys to join him in the big kitchen one day, when ready, but they feared that day. The kitchen boiled and steam leaked out the vents cut in the door above the basement stairs. Blenders and mixers raged and whined into the night. I think father would be pleased if you asked for an industrial food processor, said mother. James knew mother could not hear their birthday wishes. Love and allegiance to father overwhelmed her senses. Charles bounced in place. He dreamed of things to build with. James said, If a food processor is what you think we should have, mother, that is what we want. Charles's puffy cheeks reddened, his lips trembled. James caught his eyes and encouraged him to be brave. The birthday party came and mother dressed the boys in party hats. Cooks from father's kitchen brought down special dishes and stainless steel mixing bowls for the meal. 
poultries and young calf and foal so tender the meats fell off the bones to liquefy in their own juices. Pastas so drenched in butters and unclarified oils the brothers could not discern the noodle's shapes. The brothers had eaten so many rich, creamy dishes in their lives they could no longer tell foods apart. They emptied each bowl, tasting nothing. When they finished one, the white-coated cook who'd brought it took it back and climbed the left side of the stairway back to the kitchen. More cooks brought fresh dishes down the right side. The meal could not end until dishes stopped coming and the boys had finished everything. From her rocker in the corner, Mother looked on, pleased. Next to her rested the tall box containing the boy's gift. After many courses, the boys lagged in their eating, forcing the cooks to wait for empty bowls to return. A voice blasted from within the steam-filled kitchen above. Where are my cooks? cried Father. The cooks hunched and shook. Mother called up in her gentle voice. The boys relish the dishes so much, husband. They are not emptying each bowl as it's brought, but savoring their meal. Even though no one could withstand Father's will, she protected them as best she could. Ah, never mind the bowls, cried Father. I have dishes for my sons to eat. How can they ever join me in the kitchen if they do not eat what I make? The cooks left the bowls on the floor and the table and scrambled back up the stairs to carry more. After the party, the boys lay on the woven rug amid empty bowls. James's belly rose and fell. Bowls lay stacked in mountains. The cooks had not returned for them. Father would need his cooks later to prepare the next day's orders, and he'd sent them to bed for a few hours. James drifted, guts splitting. Charles whimpered in agony. The creak of Mother's rocker stopped. She rose and clapped her hands. Boys, she said, have you forgotten your present? James struggled to sit up. His pants button popped off, which eased discomfort. Charles leaned up. He looked at James with hope in his eyes. Perhaps Mother had relented and given them something to build with, after all. Mother stood up. She heaved. She pushed the present, which was bigger than they three combined, toward the middle of the room. She hid a smile, pulling down the corners of her mouth. Charles tried to rush forward, but managed only to lumber. The box equaled his height. He tugged the ribbon around it. James helped him, lifting one side of the box lid, letting Charles try the other. When his younger brother stood tiptoe, arms outstretched, James removed the lid. Charles peeked over the edge. Stainless steel, the food processor shone in the room's dim light. They pulled the box apart to see the gift. Charles made little fists without crying or showing mother any sign of disappointment. He made James proud. The food processor consisted of a large spout that led into a steel tank that would hold many gallons. Circular blades of different widths and angles fitted the tank. Mother told them they'd received the largest, most powerful food processor in the world. Besides the electrical power cord, the machine sported an oil-burning motor Father had attached. Father did not like electricity, which was not organic, not earthy. 
He insisted his appliances be powered by the grease from his oven traps or the extractions from his ingredients. Mother said she and father had decided to give the boys the first one ever made because they loved them so much and expected them to change the world as father had. Even father did not have this machine yet. She leaned down for a peck on the cheek from each boy. Together, the boys lifted the food processor and carried it to a corner. Mother told them to clear away the bowls from the party and set them at the top of the stairs for the cooks to take in the morning. She went to bed. Too tired to work, Charles yawned. I wish we could blink our eyes and make this mess disappear. James thought a bit. Maybe we can, he said. Let's see what happens if we put a bowl in the food processor. We can't, said Charles. Father wouldn't like it. With so many, he'll never miss a few. Let's see it work. Charles backed away, but stood transfixed as James set up the machine. James started the engine and moved the lever at the base to the highest setting, liquefy. It made a shrill whir. This would not wake Mother, who slept through loud equipment noises coming from the kitchen every night. James dropped a bowl down the spout. A short ripping sound interrupted the steady hum. He stopped the machine and opened the trap at the tank's base. Inside, he found a thin layer of liquid steel, enough to dampen a fingertip. It works, he said. He closed the trap and turned the motor on again. He gathered more bowls, and this time Charles helped him, eager to feed the machine himself. The blades responded with a tink for each bowl fed in. When the final one disappeared down the spout, James smiled. He told Charles to help him shove the food processor into the corner again for the night. The tank was heavy with broth, and the brothers couldn't move it. How are we going to get that liquid out? said Charles. James peered into the tank. It brimmed with steel soup. He dipped his finger, licked it. We'll drink it, he said. Oh, I'm too full, said Charles. Oh, it's only a few more gallons. James removed the cover. He leaned into the tank. He gulped the liquid. Steel coated his insides. The more he drank, the more he wanted. He climbed into the tank to drink more easily. Charles pulled over Mother's rocking chair to stand on and climbed into the tank himself. Finished, they stood tall, strong. James and Charles climbed out to get other things for the food processor. They broke up the table that had been set out for their birthday dinner and fed the pieces through the spout. They drank the wood soup. They shoved every loose thing down the spout, furniture, woven rugs. They went to their bedroom, brought out their beds and ground them up. Charles picked up Mother's rocking chair. He lifted it overhead, ready to crush it to splinters. No, shouted James. Nothing's left, said Charles. There's plenty upstairs. Yeah, but we're not supposed to go up there. We'll have a peek. Maybe father's gone or sleeping. Charles shivered. Neither of them had ever seen father in the flesh. Let's go as far as the door, said James. They lifted the food processor without effort now and carried it to the foot of the steps. 
James climbed the stairs. He bent down to the vents and listened for pots clanging, food sizzling, or father's booming voice. Silence. He tried the door, locked and too solid for him to pull open, even with the strength gained from the bowls and furniture they'd drunk. He descended. Help me turn the food processor on its side. Charles helped, but backed away afterward. James aligned the spout with the bottom step. He held onto the base of the food processor and told Charles to do the same. I don't want to, Charles said. We're not allowed. Let me worry about that. The boys held on fast. James started the motor. Again, he moved the lever to liquefy. The machine swallowed the stairs, driving upward. It reached the top, crashed through the door. The boys held tight. The food processor kept going into the kitchen, sucking up pots and pans and implements in its path. James managed to reach the lever. The machine whirred to a stop. He stood up. It had cut a swath deep into the stacks and stacks of pots, pans, and implements that filled the kitchen. They righted the food processor. James opened the cover to drink the tank's fresh contents. Where's father? said Charles. James lifted his head. He turned. He stepped through a curtain of mixing spoons and butcher's knives. Past it, he peered deep into the kitchen. Prone, on a large chopping table, lay father. As big and round as ten cooks, chef's hat awry, white clothes stained with the grease of dishes he'd made James and Charles eat that night. The table held the remains of a hundred ingredients, skins, feet, guts. Father awoke, sat up, scratched a neck boil. James backed away. He fell against the utensil's curtain. Father jumped up. Son James, why are you here without permission? To use our birthday present, Father. Father lumbered forward through the pot and pan curtain. Charles hid himself under a stock pot. Father bent down to lift the food processor's lid. James braced himself. Father looked into the contents of the food processor. The soup of staircase, the pots and pans that had been in the machine's feeding path. He took a ladle from the curtain and dipped it into the soup. He brought the ladle up. He sipped. He swallowed. His eyes widened. What have you done? Father spat out the soup. James ran and father chased him. James pumped his legs and arms. The steel and wood he'd taken fueled him, but he lost ground. Father's long strides closed the distance. James led him to the basement door. He crouched at the threshold. Father stepped off into the darkness. His magnificent bulk fell. A cry escaped. Not father's. James peered down into the darkness. He could see little, only black shapes in the gloom below. Father moved, drawing up his body. He bent up, then stood. He lifted the limp mass that he'd fallen on. Mother. An enraged cry escaped his lips. Liquid gurgled within his throat and deep down in his chest. If he spoke words, James could not understand them. Father dragged Mother's broken body with him, and wrecked from his fall, stumbled in dizzy circles within the basement prison. James shivered in fear that Father would look up and see him, but he could not make himself run away. Father spat, 
clearing the liquid from his throat. Boys, where are my boys? What's become of my family? He raised mother, tiny, a tiny spare rib in contrast to father's beef flank arm, dangling her. He brought his free hand up to his own jaw and worked it open, stretching the skin around his mouth, widening the mouth's gape. He stretched it into a maw, an eating machine. James leapt back. He could see father intended to consume her, to take back in that better part of himself. The food processor lay right where they'd left it upon crashing it in the kitchen. James put his shoulder against the processor and pushed. It would go faster with Charles's help, but Charles was still hiding and would not do for him to see what happened to mother. James's legs ached. His shoulder ground against the cold steel. The processor moved a quarter inch, half an inch at a time, until it tottered on the precipice. James peered around it. Father raised mother over his maw. His face was only teeth and eyes glistened by the food processor's sheen. James pushed. The food processor tumbled through the darkness. It hit father and mother and clanged in the hollow of the basement. Silence. James realized he was standing on the power plug. The power cord stretched down to the basement, tensed to its limit. Careful not to move his foot, he stretched himself over to the pot Charles hid under. James lifted it. We can't go back now, said James. We'll stay above. Help me pull the machine back up. It fell, he said, protecting his brother. Together they pulled it back up. James did not allow Charles to look down into the basement. The brothers were hungry and fed one implement after another into the food processor, stopping to drink each time the tank filled, making room for more. At dawn, they started on the fixtures, then the ceiling, then the great kitchen's walls. Finally, they exposed the outside world of rock, tree, and road that they had only known from books mother read them. Charles told James he wanted to go below and find mother. This is not the time, said James. We have to change the world. He picked up a piece of earth and fed it into the machine. The boys found the landscape nourishing and pushed the food processor forward. Bit by bit, they ate a path to the city. Well, that was our story. I wish my coming of age involved getting buff from eating steel. Well, let's do some story feedback from our 100th episode, Trifecta 6. The feedback portion of our show often has spoilers, so if you haven't heard Drabblecast 100, skip ahead to the part of the show where I ask for listener donations. This trifecta featured the story's cork ringtone on the breakdancing pig by Mel Bosworth, which was about a guy dressed up as Jesus holding up a liquor store to pay off his debt to the mob, 
Jerry Sounds by Michelle Howarth, which was kind of a sensory tone poem about a torture chamber prisoner, and Cupid Playing by Ken Goldman, which was about, well, a naked guy with a crossbow. Interesting array of responses to these stories. Golden Rat said, Good stuff this week. Cork ringtone was good. I got a few chuckles out of it. Nice change of pace and Jerry sounds. It really creeped the hell out of me. I didn't know what to think of Cupid playing. I wanted to laugh, but the thought of some young horn dogs getting slaughtered in the park kind of put a damper on the whole deal for me. Mm-hmm. I bet you still laughed. Sicko. Poppy Dragon said, The first of these, Cork Ringtone, just didn't do it for me at all, I'm afraid. Probably wasn't helped by the fact that the story, in my mind, peopled with characters from The Simpsons. Homer was, of course, Jesus. Hmm. Of course. Jerry sounds more than made up for it, though. Brilliantly written. Perfect production. This was spine-shivering and nasty in a good way. It made me think of the killer in the Dexter books and what he did to his victims. Brilliant. Wait, they're Dexter books? Poppy Dragon continued, saying, Cupid managed to catch me out slightly, although I think that was due to the narration rather than the story. If I'd read it, I think I'd seen the twist coming more clearly. And finally, Kevin Anderson added, Cork ringtone and the breakdancing pig was funny and well-read. It reminded me of a Seinfeld episode with Kramer as Jesus and everything coming together at the end. And wouldn't this be a better world if more cops took up breakdancing? Instead of busting heads, they could be busting moves. Jerry sounds, he continued, emotionally put me in the middle of the Inquisition. I know it wasn't a story about the Inquisition, it just mentally transported me there. Which is odd, because usually when I reflect on the Inquisition, it's with images of Mel Brooks busting a move, and well-choreographed synchronized swimmers. Good times. So hey, we have a merchandise section on our page now, where you can get Drabblecast t-shirts, Drabblecast archive CDs, and my CD of absurd yet brilliant, if I do say so myself, songs. We've got plans to expand this page and get all sorts of cool Drabblecast goodies in the future, so keep your eyes open. Well, that's our show. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can't change it, you can't sell it, but you're welcome to share it with whoever you like. Tell a friend, spread the word, or if you really like us, consider donating to us via the PayPal buttons on our website. We use listener donations to pay authors for their stories. That's how it works. Well, that's our show. I guess I'll... I guess I'll see you next week. I, I had a great time. I just... I want to do this right, you know? Anyways, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you... Mmm, staircase.